0: Hi, it's Chris with a reminder. Have you signed up for my free newsletter? You can at chrisreback.com. My thanks to the hundreds of folks who've already signed up. The newsletter delivers lots of great material that doesn't fit into the podcast. Extra questions with guests, a personal backstory to each conversation, show notes, and more. I do a lot of research for these conversations. The newsletter brings you behind the podcast. This week's bonus question for guest Amy Walter asks, what role women candidates, voters, and the gender gap will play this midterm? Amy gave an incredibly thoughtful analysis that you'll want to see. Of course, signing up for the free newsletter also puts you in the running for a free gift. This week, a copy of New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu's book, In the Shadow of Statues. If you heard Landrieu's passion and sincerity on a recent podcast, you'll want to read the book. Just go to chrisreback.com to sign up for my new newsletter. That's chrisreback.com. Thanks. And now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Can we talk politics? Don't forget, it's the political elections that deliver the policies that define our democracy. Not happy with how things are going? You might want to vote. Thrilled? Well, you may want to also. So where's the 2018 midterm vote headed? Amy Walter is the person to ask. Amy's national editor of the Cook Political Report and simply one of the best political journalists around. Her weekly column is a must-read, and when she's not writing, you regularly see her on the PBS NewsHour or any one of the other television political shows. And starting in June, she'll be Friday host of The Takeaway on WNYC and podcast, There's No Avoiding Amy. Huh, that's not a bad show title. There's No Avoiding Amy. I'll have to tell her that one. Before we begin the conversation, though, I want to remind you about our show's sponsor and Amy's employer, the Cook Political Report. How about that synergy? As you just heard, Amy could work just about anywhere. So what's special about the Cook Political Report? It's that people who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. And now, as if to prove the point, here's my conversation with Amy Walter. Amy, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time.
1: You're very welcome.
0: So in part, your bio reads... Over the past 19 years, Amy Walter has built a reputation as an accurate, objective, and insightful political analyst. Accurate, insightful, oh, okay, that's fine. But objective isn't a word we hear much <laughs> about political co- – you sure you're doing this right?
1: Yeah, I know. Isn't that funny? It's, it's something that has been in my bio from the very beginning, and nobody really c- questioned what the, that the, word yeah, they didn't um, question the accuracy of it. In previous years, no, it was <laughs> right. They Well, they would just say, well, of course you are. That's your job. You're a political analyst. Right. Why wouldn't you right. be objective? So, and I, I think this is where we are now in 2018, is that there are a whole bunch of other people who are also objective, but mm. they are not, um, they're no longer seen in that way. And there are some people... That are clearly not objective, and they get a great deal of attention. Yeah. And so, trying to uh, trying to figure out who or what matters is becoming, I think, harder than ever.
0: Yeah, it's like it, it, it's becoming the eye of the beholder. Objectivity—it's lacked an objective uh, measure is what it feels like, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're just inundated. I mean, as, as humans, there's just so much information that we can process, right? Our brains are not able to take in the amount of data and news and information that's coming at us. And so we have to categorize it somehow. And I think the easiest way and the, the, the way that humans have been doing it forever, is to put it in sort of tribal terms, right? This is It comes from my tribe versus it comes from the outside. You know, who do you believe, the people that are with you or the people that are outside of your community? Um, And so we do the shorthand. Instead of understanding the issue or understanding the controversy, we say, well, uh, hmm, my tribe says it's bad, so I'm going to go with it.
0: And so, in terms of, so we understand kind of in terms of objectivity and certainly divisiveness, but, um, you've covered politics for about two decades now. Sorry, this is not an age question. I'm, you know, I, no, I'm the last. No, you can day. absolutely do that. <laughs> but, not but, quite it, no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm the, I'm not going there, not me personally. Um, but what about in terms of interest? I mean, it's, it's not a bad time to be a political analyst.
1: You're right. So you have more people. I think, in some ways, engaged, and who want to talk about politics than ever. But I also worry that um, we're turning a lot of people off. And by we meaning that what's happening um, Mm. constantly, the churning in Washington is turning a lot of people off. And so I feel like there is a bigger disconnect now between what's actually happening. And I'm not just talking about what right? Whether it's news or fake news or what somebody interprets as happening, but things that are actually happening in Washington versus what people are talking about and what they're engaging with outside of Washington. Uh, that to me is, is what is also making this a very challenging time to do an analysis because the interpretation of politics is Becoming—it's no longer where it seems like we're all kind of getting a bunch of information, and then we we react to it differently. It's that we're getting all kinds of information, some of it vastly different from yeah. what other people are getting, and then we react to that. And um, I mean, I've been amazed at the you know the number of people that I speak with, whether giving a talk or. I'm listening to focus groups or just talking to people in other places around the country. Um, I don't hear anything about Russia. I don't hear anything about um, Stormy Daniels. I don't get questions about impeachment.
0: What do you get asked most? What, what do you when you go around? What What do you get asked?
1: Uh, you know what I get asked most is exactly where you started this conversation. Uh, this concern about how divided we are as a Hmm. country Uh, question about how do we get our country back to a place where there is um, a trust between different sides or, you know, the there's a, there's real frustration about the amount of vitriol out there, the tone um, and tenor of the debate. There is, a frustration about um, the lack of moderation, however you want to call that, whether mm-hmm. that's moderation in tone, whether that's moderation in political um, the, the issues, whether that's in policy, whether that's in bipartisanship. So, um, and, and a whole bunch of people just think, I, how do we know what's true and not true, right? How do I know that what's on my television is the factual thing? Hmm. That I can I can go to the bank with that and say, okay, this is true. This is not true, um, and that is what I hear uh, more about than really
0: anything else do you, are you hearing people asking that question with a hope with a goal of people coming together or are you hearing the question in terms of how do i bring, because you talked about the tribalism a moment ago in terms yeah. of how do i bring those other guys who are getting the wrong information the wrong facts and coming to the wrong conclusions how do i bring them over to the side of light so i understand people may want everyone to come together um but but what what's the what's the motivation are you finding
1: Yeah, that's an excellent way to think about that, because I don't know that many folks have thought it through all the way to where you took it, which is the debate we get into all the time with gerrymandering, right? Where people say, you know, I really think we need to have fair districts and that, that would help solve our partisan problem. Uh, We need to have districts that are more reflective uh, of the state or, we need to have districts that are more competitive. And what competitive and fair mean to me are different from what competitive and fair mean to you, but at the end of the day, what it really, what people still really like is to be represented by somebody that they feel is in uh, someone whose views they mostly agree with, right? So if you're a Republican and you're in a district right now that's Republican leaning, but we redistricted it to make it quote unquote fairer and more competitive. And then a Democrat wins it. Well, wait a minute. That's not what I meant by gerrymandering. Right. Or if you're uh, same as if you were a Democrat and now a Republican's elected. Um, So I, I take your point there that when people say what they want to see is, you know, more competition and more moderation. What I think that also means is I want people to be, thinking and behaving more the way that aligns with my point of view Um, rather than, Oh, I'd be happy to be represented by somebody who has a different point of view. Um, But to answer your question directly, I think what most people are saying is I feel really uncomfortable. And in this time that we're in, I don't like the divisions in this country, that have um, only seem to have gotten deeper. And for many people, it's within their own families, mm. right? You yeah. know, how many people have you talked to who said, I, we just don't talk about this when I get together with my in laws? Or, you know, there are husbands and wives who can't talk to each other about these things. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, well, that may not always be about politics.
1: <laughs> but,
0: no, a no lot of I, times I hear your point, it, yes.
1: It, you've, you've you've heard that. So I think it's this sense of, uh, and then I worry that it's only going to get worse. Like if it's this bad now and we don't, is is there a reason for us to be optimistic that it's going to get better or do we just have to accept that this is where we are and it could also maybe even get worse?
0: So I, I want to ask about some of the, political trends that you're seeing, particularly going into the midterms, but just to, so that folks get a sense that the, you know, the reporting that you do and the thinking and the analysis you mentioned, um, you know, you've, you've been talking to people, not just in Washington. Give me a sense. I, you know, my belief is that um, your actual profession is a uh, traveler and, and that you kind of travel <laughs> and fly for a living. Um, where, where have you, where have you been getting these insights over say, the last month or two, do you have a, a, can you remember all the places that you've been? Places where I've been? Yeah.
1: I'll tell you where the most recent place that I've been uh, was Chicago and suburban Chicago. And I was out there a couple weeks ago. And then even actually, and then more recently, I didn't travel physically, but I traveled through the, thanks to technology, and, um, to a focus group in Milwaukee, watched that this week, and um, that,
0: was that the Emory one that you? I saw you. That was the Emory that. one,
1: yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And so, you know, there there were some examples of people or places that I have talked to or or listened to, quote unquote, normal people, and then I talked to. I'm sure they would not like me calling them not normal, but you know pollsters and consultants and other people who do this for a living, right? All kinds of, of those folks yep. who most live here, but they also are living in other places. And they're also a good resource because while they may be based here, they are working with and talking to, you know, they have clients all over the country and they are seeing all kinds of data and all kinds of, you know, results in ways that I, uh, you
0: know, uh, I certainly don't have access to. So one of your, actually your most recent column as of the time that we're having this conversation um, is titled, what do we know with just under six months to go before the, the midterms? And you break down a couple different areas. Um, and I'd love to just talk to you about a few of them. Um, one is when Trump job approval ticks up, congressional ballot tightens. Um, take mm-hmm. me through that math, one, and then two, um, Talk to me about the national generic ballot and whether that's... We hear so much about it um, and whether that's a useful tool for looking into the future.
1: Well, let's start with this, which is the president's overall job approval rating and why it matters. And we know that this is a midterm election. The president's not on the ballot, but he is on the ballot and he always is on the ballot, whether his name is Donald Trump or Barack Obama or George Bush or Ronald Reagan, you know, just go through the list how people feel about the president really does drive their interest and ultimately their decision to go and vote in a midterm um, in a midterm election. So the more popular the president is, the better that his party does in a midterm. The more unpopular the president is, the worse his party does. And, you know, if you've been following campaigns for the last 10 years, you have witnessed um, three, right, you yeah, three wave elections, 2006, 2010, 2014, in midterms, where the party holding the White House um, loses a significant number of seats, so many seats that they actually lose control of one or both houses of Congress. So where the president's approval rating number is, has been a valuable tool. Now, it's a national number, which means if he's at 42% nas- nationally, he's under 42% in a whole bunch of districts, but he's over 42% in a whole bunch of other districts or states, right? We know that he's not at 42% in, say, uh, a state like Louisiana or North Dakota, Yep. but I would suspect he's under 42% in, you know, California and Virginia and places like that, right? New York. Mm-hmm. So now we'll try to narrow that down to where his job approval rating is in each individual district. That's a little bit harder, right? So we, we use it. It's sort of a shorthand, but I think the, the closer you get to 50, the more you can breathe a, a sigh of relief as the party in the white house, because there are probably more, states and districts where the president is at or above 50 than where he's below. Um, And so that's why you want to get to see those numbers if you're the, if you're uh, running in a midterm election as a member of Congress from that party that's in the White House. What we also know is, you know, when the president becomes more popular, you're going to see a change in the congressional ballot too, because as we've seen that the, the president's approval rating and commitment to voting for Congress kind of go hand in hand. So Republicans who support the president are going to vote for a Republican for Congress almost assuredly, right? It's a 90 plus percent chance that that's going to happen. And Democrats who disapprove of the president, there's a 90 percent plus chance that they are going to vote for a Democrat for Congress. So what I'm looking at when I say that the congressional ballot test tightens is as the uh, percent of Republicans who say that they're going to vote for the president increases, you're likely to see a little bit of a tick up in the president's approval rating, mm. which is what we're seeing now. Um, and where I'm really looking specifically is how do independents see the president? And um, what we find, in, and uh, this is not just for this president, but I think it's it's been true for at least the last couple of midterm elections. But the president's approval rating among independent voters translates pretty directly into how they will vote in the midterm elections. When I looked at the president's overall approval rating in some of these special elections, there was a very strong correlation with what the Republican candidate got in the final vote. So, for example, if you look at the special election in that Pennsylvania 18 race.
0: Yeah, Conor Lamb.
1: Yeah. And remember, it's one of the few, This if is the Conor Lamb race, and it's one of the few special elections where you actually had a lot of polling. You know, a lot of House races were not going to get public polling. We may not even get to have access to any of the private polling either, but we had a significant number of polls there, and the president's approval rating was 49% and the Republican candidate ended up with 49%. In Alabama, where we also had polling and where we had an exit poll in that Senate race, President uh, Trump was at 48%. In the exit poll, in terms of his approval rating, Roy Moore got 48%. Now, it's not always going to line up that directly. And I think when you're an incumbent, you can expect to be, be able to Overperform the president. You're not just a stand-in or a proxy for a Republican. People actually usually know something about you. But I do think that uh, once again, when the the president's approval rating is a very good, um, you know, it's a it, it's a very good estimate of where a generic republic what a generic Republican candidate should expect to get.
0: Let's talk about voter intensity. Um, It has seemed that that has been on the Democrat side, and there has been talk of an enthusiasm gap when comparing uh, Democrat and Republican voters. Uh, But you wrote recently that there are some signs that GOP voters may be catching up with Democrats on the measure of intensity. What are you seeing?
1: So we're seeing some mixed signals. Um, Remember, in these past few years, Special elections, actually, in let's just even go to all of the special elections that we've had in Congress for for uh, for House or Senate seats. So federal special elections, the Democratic candidate has outperformed the average percent of the vote that uh, that we should we expect them to get. So where a Democratic candidate would normally be in that district. Um, they have actually performed on average ten points better. So if this is a district where a Democrat uh traditionally gets thirty seven percent of the vote in uh in the special elections, they've been getting forty seven percent of the vote.
0: This is what we heard in uh Georgia six, John Ossoff, the first one. This is I what think we
1: heard in Georgia, Montana, that's right,
0: right? Wasn't there Kansas, yep. all those at the beginning.
1: All those and they've continued. It's one thing to say. So on the one hand, you say, well, maybe that was just because those were taking place. 2017, the president was really struggling, especially, you know, uh, or early 2018. But now things have gotten better. Well, the even the Arizona special election, which didn't get a, nearly as much attention as Pennsylvania, the Democrat, once again, outperformed um, by a significant margin and. A lot of that can be based on intensity, um, that there are simply more Democrats who are interested and engaged and coming out and voting. And you're hearing the anecdotal evidence as well, right? You talk to Democrats who say, I've never seen anybody. Usually nobody ever shows up to our town hall, you know, get togethers or the local Democratic Party barbecue. And now we didn't have enough seats. It was standing room only. Um, So there is there is definitely an enthusiasm from Democrats driven mostly, of course, or almost entirely by Donald Trump on the Republican side. They do not have that same level of intensity in terms of I got to get out. I got to be engaged. I got to go vote that that Democrats do. The polls that we've seen in these last couple of weeks suggest that maybe Republicans are becoming a little more engaged they're telling voters they're telling pollsters that they are more likely uh, to vote than they were um, a couple of months back but it's unclear if that is going to translate in November right um, so this has been our challenge and in trying to figure out what the electorate is going to look like come November. Is it going to look more like we saw in these special elections where Democrats turn out at unpre, maybe they might not be unprecedented rates, but at higher levels and Republicans turn out, but it doesn't, is not able to match the percent of Republican turnout and Democrats win or do we see more of a traditional midterm electorate where, yeah, maybe Democrats turn out at a higher rate than we've seen, but Republicans who are traditionally their, their voters um, or voters who demographically fit the profile of a Republican, those who are older, especially white, uh, do they just – they ultimately turn out because – these voters turn out no matter what, even if they say they're not enthusiastic, they still turn out and vote. They may not tell a pollster that they're excited about it. They may not truly be excited about it, but they come out and vote. So what what is it going to look like? And nobody really knows it's going to look more like the special elections. Is it going to look more like a traditional midterm election? The one place where, you know, the worst case scenario for Republicans is like something that happened in Virginia in the governor's race where. Republican turnout was actually really good. It was, it was at what people would expect to see uh, for uh, a Republican candidate that the vote totals that Ed Gillespie got were quite excellent, maybe even a little bit above where their vote goals were. It's just that the numbers for Ralph Northam were that much stronger.
0: Yeah, were extraordinary. Uh, yeah a, uh, a an issue to ask you about um gun control and uh we're talking today and the news is still coming out so we don't uh, have everything um but there was a, another school shooting today the santa mm-hmm. fe texas uh school shooting outside of houston um is gun control is it an is it an issue that can drive anything? Is it something that can create impact in either direction? Are you hearing about it? Or politically speaking, do we see it come up, you know, when when Parkland or Santa Fe and uh, we all get uh, depressed um, and frustrated and furious? um, But politically, does it make is it something that can make impact?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I um, I think we're seeing this issue potentially playing a different role than it has in recent elections. At least, you know that it, it, politically, as as part of a campaign, the first thing I'll tell you, like for example, when I went out to suburban Chicago, um, they the Democrats there are very active in their um, Uh, support for gun control or, you know, restrictions, whatever we want to call it. But there is, I think, going to be a focus on the issue of guns in these suburban districts like we have not seen in in previous elections. And we're seeing it, too, in terms of voters, but you're right to ask, well, what does it actually mean, right? Voters say that this is an issue for them, but does that mean that what do they want to see from? What does it mean that's an issue to them? So I looked at the most recent CBS poll, which came out, I think it's a little over a week ago, where they asked voters, what issue is the most important in deciding your vote on the economy? I mean, a vote for Congress. And um, the economy and healthcare, not surprisingly, were the top two issues. But among all groups of voters, independents, Republicans, and Democrats. Guns were either second or third choice for the most important issue in this election. And I don't know that I've seen that before. Uh, and again, this was taken before uh, Santa the Fe. horrible Santa yeah. Fe, yeah. Uh, Texas shootings. So it does feel like it's different. I do think that part of the challenge for the side... Um, in the Democratic side or the side that wants to see more restrictions on guns has been that they get intensely engaged, but it, it does not translate to how they vote, or it's not quite as much of a voting issue as it is for people who are supportive of the NRA or, or want to see fewer restrictions on guns. That may, this may be the year when that changes.
0: So one more theory question and then uh, I'll close out with a uh, quick scorecard uh, question. Um, th- this relates a little bit to what you were just saying about uh, in the suburbs, Democratic candidates um, and th- moving stronger – more strongly on uh, gun control or thinking that it's going to be a big suburban issue. Um, is the de- – many folks see the Democratic Party veering towards the left, sort of like the emergence of a reverse Tea Party movement or something. Um, Are you – as you've traveled, as you're visiting, do you see that or are those folks misreading things?
1: Yeah, I I tend to think that this idea about there being a Tea Party on the left uh, is somewhat overblown and and we haven't seen it yet. And and let me tell you why I think that. The first is the desire for Democrats to win, period, is – more important is like the overarching issue um, than anything else, than ideology, than the type of candidate, anything like that. It's just who do we need to win? This person? Great. Fine. With them. Oh, it's this, you know, if, if what comes out of a primary is literally, you know, I'm looking here at my Diet Coke bottle. <laughs> if it's a Diet Coke bottle and, an, and it's a uh, the Democratic nominee, fine. That's who I'm going to vote for. Don't care. Right. right. That is my goal as a Democrat. This is what I this is the sense that I get from voters. They're saying my goal as a Democrat is to get more Democrats in office, because when we do that, then we are a check on President Trump, period. Right. The ideology is not the issue. It's winning. That's the issue. The second point I will make is if there really were a Tea Party on the left, I think what you would have seen is Challenges to many of the more conservative or moderate members of Congress, specifically the red state senators mm. from the left, mm-hmm. and that hasn't happened. There's no. This isn't like 2010 when moderates like Mike Castle in Delaware were challenged to uh, his right, where Robert Bennett from Utah lost his primary to a Tea Party candidate. So that. Uh, You just don't see that um, in the same way. And even in places where I know in Nebraska, for example, this week, there was uh, a primary where the former more moderate Democratic member of Congress was trying to win the nomination to take on uh, the chance to win his seat back in Omaha, Nebraska. He narrowly lost to a more progressive candidate. But I think it's also important to remember that the person he lost to was female. And I think being a woman in this environment, especially on the Democratic side, is a tremendous asset. And she was new and different. And he was a former member of Congress. Being a member of Congress or even a former member of Congress is not a great resume point in this era. And uh, so I don't know that voters on the Democratic side are out there picking and choosing uh, based on you know, who's standing up for what policy. I do think what they want is somebody who's going to energize them, who's interesting to them. Um, I do think that being a woman candidate in many cases is really helpful. Um, Money has not proven to be the, the only reason that a candidate has been able to succeed, but it also helps. Um, But but narrative and story have also been critical. So I think the bigger challenge for Democrats going forward is not whether they have a sort of Tea Party-like division within um, their ranks, but whether the candidates that they are nominating are actually going to be able to withstand the scrutiny and the rigor of being a first-time candidate. Many of these people came out of... um, uh, they were sort of organically grown, I would argue. These were not people who were necessarily recruited, right? Whole, whole you know, Foods candidates. They're the Whole Foods that's, uh, I should dub it that, the Whole Foods candidates. Um, Go ahead. That's yours. No, you, you got it. You came up with it. Um, they, uh, you know, most of the time, that's what the parties, that was their job. That was what they're there to do is... You go out and you're like, okay, North Carolina, 13th district, okay, what kind of candidates do we, what kind of candidate do we need? What do we have? We've got a state rep, we've got a county commissioner, let's go talk to them, convince them to run. That's not what this year looks like. This year is a whole bunch of people who literally picked up the phone. If you've talked to, um, Stephanie, uh, Sherrock, uh, at uh, at Emily's List, she'll tell you the story of, you know, literally getting phone calls through their, um, just their direct line, like their normal business line yeah. saying, hi, I'm a woman, I'm really interested in running, can you help me? Um, and so they were, they were not at all uh, the kinds of people who would have thought about running, even two or three or four years ago. So. What is what are they going to do when it becomes, you know, a national race and they've got to raise two, three, four million dollars and they have, you know, all kinds of stuff about their personal lives getting out into the public and they get the scrutiny that they've never gotten before. we will soon find out some of them are going to be just fine. Some of them may not.
0: And so let's close out uh, with that question, the scorecard. Uh, what, What does Cook Political say? Uh, as of now, uh, regarding uh, will Democrats take the House? Will Democrats take the Senate?
1: Yeah, I would say that Democrats have an advantage when it comes to the House um, that is, um, well, let me say this. I think, yes, Democrats do have the advantage when it comes to taking the majority in the House, but I would not say it's an overwhelming advantage. I would say it is um, still something that is, uh, you know, not, it's not a slam, it's nowhere near a slam dunk. So how about that? Um, But they have the opportunity, thanks in part to the political environment, the fact that there are many more Republican open seats, a lot of Republican retirements, so they have opportunities there. Um, and they have a lot of candidates who've raised a lot of money. Um, so they have that going for them. But they've still got to find a way to pick up seats that are republican leaning, and they still have to knock off incumbents, many of whom have um, you know put together uh, pretty good, solid campaigns. On the Senate side, it's uh, the, the challenge is much more significant for Democrats. Uh, you have to give Republicans the advantage there in in holding on to the Senate. Uh, I think they got a boost. Republicans did by getting through uh, the first two primaries um, with and getting a, a nominees who are better than some of the other choices that were out there. Doesn't mean that it's again that it has made it uh, a slam dunk for Republicans to take back Indiana or West Virginia, but certainly better. So I think it's pretty safe to say Democratic chances in the House uh, remain stronger than Democratic chances in the Senate.
0: Amy, thank you. Thank you for your time uh, and, and your insights.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on.
0: That was my conversation with Amy Walter. Want more from Amy? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from her on the question, what role will women candidates, voters, and the gender gap play this midterm? Plus, sign up, and you'll get a chance to win a copy of a book from a recent podcast. My thanks to Amy for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.